Hello, this is Earl Fontanelle, this is The Schwepp, and today we're speaking with Eric Davis, author of a book called High Weirdness, and a bunch of other books that you can check out, and also a man who's written a lot of articles and is just generally active online in the sort of esoteric yet psychedelic manner. We're also joined by Eddie Nix, a man who runs the best bookstore in North America, allegedly, who may or may not be joining the conversation. He's sort of hiding out. Thank you for joining us on the Schwet. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Now, here we are to talk about Robert Anton Wilson and his ideas and his life and all that kind of stuff. So I wonder, maybe the best thing would be for you to kind of introduce the guy in your own words. Tell us about him and we'll go from there. Yeah, that's that's say, saying a lot. Robert Anton Wilson um, is, a, is a gateway consciousness drug for for many folks in in my generation in generations following and maybe a little bit older uh than me um he's sort of uh i don't know what he's best known for but the first thing he did of real significance was to uh co-publish a book in 1975 called illuminatus um with a fellow uh editor at playboy where he was working at the time when he concocted uh, the ideas for this book, which is kind of a uh, postmodern conspiracy, esoteric, uh, hippie freak romp full of satire and pulp pastiche, uh, bad jokes, good jokes, anarchist ideology, libertarian um, snark. Uh, it's really, an, uh, there's nothing like it. Uh, it. It captures and exceeds something about freak America uh, in the in that period in the late 60s or the long 60s we can call it and that's sort of where he kind of throws down and then shortly after that uh or or as that book was published he was already transforming himself into a kind of underground esoteric intellectual uh such a thing was somehow he managed to carve it out uh, of, of uh, modern american reality and that's pretty much what he did uh, to the end of his life. He, he wrote voluminously, um, uh, engagingly, though sometimes uh, he could definitely be sloppy, but he cranked out many a marvelous uh, mindfuck tome uh, where he was, and, and this has been what makes him interesting, is that he was really synthesizing in these nonfiction books, though they're related to the fictions in very deep ways, but I'm leaving that, that aside for the moment. But in his nonfiction books, he it wasn't so much synthesized as he occupied this sort of node in a variety of discourse networks that were just not like anybody else. Again, there was this kind of a libertarian anarchist uh, approach that was deeply rooted in his own politics, which, you know, he was a peacenik, but he was also more of what he sometimes called a right wing anarchist. Um, and that adds an interesting sort of libertarian twist. He's interested in consciousness and the history of, uh, of, of linguistics. Um, uh, you know, uh, he's drawing from existentialism. He was a Marxist for a while and then he abandoned it, but he, he maintains a kind of um, materialism and a kind of uh, supple movement between different discourses that makes him an interestingly postmodern figure in the kind of classic sense where you're recognizing the multiplicity of languages. This in, in, invokes a certain kind of playfulness. 
and a certain kind of willingness to play with the boundaries between fiction and fact or to suggest that there's some other dimension of ontology or experience that can be released through these things. So there's a great playfulness to his work. And, you know, it's definitely not scholarship. I can read a lot of this material now and, and quibble with many points and he's hasty and overgeneralizes, but it is original intellectual work at this juncture of esotericism, politics, technology, and a certain kind of, uh, you know, linguistic or self social constructionism, where there's a sense of like the sort of invented nature of a lot of our categories and words. And they, it really did serve for certain kinds of people. I'm sure Eddie is also in this uh, uh, category, perhaps yourself as well, especially, you know, in the late teens, early twenties kind of phase, it's like one of those gifts that you never really leave. And, and so for me, it was a great thing because when I came to write this book, there really was almost no scholarly literature on, on Wilson at all. And not even a very good remembrance of him inside the underground. Although there's certain currents that are very crucially inflected by his work. Chaos magic is one, a certain kind of Crowleyan, fringier side of, of Crowleyan esoterica and sex magic. You know, there's these little weird subcultural currents where he's very important, but for the most part, not really kind of remembered. So it was a good opportunity to also sort of sketch out the loose uh, overview of a biography and, and doing some of that work of contextualization uh, to try to understand where he came, where he was coming from, how he how he was operating. You contextualize him in your book High Weirdness alongside Terence McKenna and Philip K. Dick, all Californians, all roughly living at the same time, all roughly blurring the weird in the seventies. Um, I guess that's a linking theme. There's other linking themes as well. They're all they're all very interested in the way fiction bleeds into whatever the other thing is nonfiction. Um, they're all very interested in sort of reality tunnels. This is a, a term that pops up a lot. And how you can play with them, the degree to which you can kind of hack the, the code and, and make new reality tunnels and stuff like that. Um, before we get to Crowley, there's this thing called discordianism, which is really interesting, that shows up in Illuminatus. And that in itself is a really interesting little bit of Western esoteric history, I would argue history of religions, you know, even though it's not serious, or maybe because it's not serious, or because it doesn't choose the serious versus non-serious dichotomy at all. So what can you tell us about uh, discordianism? Yeah, I think discordianism is one of those movements that was so tiny and marginal in its original formation and even subsequent iterations for, for a number of, for many years, that you know one hesitates to place too much overall significance on it and yet at the same time it is extraordinarily significant because of some of the novelties that it introduces into let's call it esotericism mm. or or even into politics including the kind of the ironic dialectics that you have just pointed out that there's an extraordinary power that, um, you know, itself we can talk about in, in a number of ways and has some very, uh, in more recent times, has had some um, different expressions that are perhaps less liberatory than they were at one point. Yeah. You know, we'll leave that as a hanging thread for now. Uh, but the game of presenting 
real ideas, authentic uh, positions, uh, insights, uh, claims in this guise of humor where you kind of, you can't find, you can't find your way back. Is this a joke? Is this a joke that's taking itself seriously? Is this a serious joke? You get into this sort of strong Nietzschean celebratory is nihilistic, but also incredibly creative sort of expression. And they're doing that um, in these early documents that are, it's basically a kind of male art or proto zine art where they're, um, they're creating, you know, pamphlets that are made up of rubber stamps and fake headings on letters and little jokes and drawings. And it's this very kind of anarchic approach to politics and consciousness and real esotericism or religion. You have elements of Zen Buddhism. Uh, you have, you know, corny hot dog jokes. And there's a lot of playfulness around uh, over time uh, with conspiracies. And indeed, basically, one of the things that happens, this is already an existing kind of libertarian esoterica group, uh, small, making these little zines, popping up here and there. And then Robert Anton Wilson discovers them uh, while he's working at Playboy magazine in the late 60s and while he's working on Illuminatus. And so he gets involved with them. They get woven into his, his novel. And so the overall significance of it, you know, increases greatly through his works. Um, but he was also actively involved in playing games with, that they would do. They were interested in pranking. They were interested in the idea of the mind fuck, which is something I excavate in the book. This very strange phrase when you hear it, you're like, God, that is, like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, fucking is kind of good, but like, it seems kind of bad. It'd be mind fuck, but then, well, maybe there's some fun there or illumination. And there was a kind of approach to illumination that emphasized that took a sort of thread of the radical uh, prank quality of Zen awakening, mixed it with psychedelia or sort of druggy self-reference, and then intensified into a form that was simultaneously political and esoteric at the same time, that the kind of freedom that was being gestured to was radical, existential, uh, but also... In, you know, engaged directly in a, in a kind of political fabric around how people were organizing the underground or the counterculture or whatever this sort of escape run outside of Western civilization was uh, trying to, you know, to create or was, was being created in that, in that period of time. Um, so it was a very small movement with a lot of force and that ended up being a lot more influential through uh, Wilson's work. Let me put something to you. What you've described, taking it out of its immediate context in America in the 1970s, is an exact description of the Rosicrucian manifestos. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, the meditation on the relationship of, of games and fiction fact uh, blends and reframings and that that thread within uh, esotericism, I think, is is really one of the most productive ones for moderns to contemplate. And I say that partly because we can see that many elements of let's again call it postmodernity and whatever we've been in since postmodernity is running off of some of these blends and 
marvels and that therefore there's an aspect of the of the esoteric tradition in the west let's take it from the rosicrucians forward where the artificiality of it its invented quality is no argument against it mm. and once you've established that then that means that you can bring all your historical critical thought to bear and rather than undermining some claim of authenticity or some great tradition that's been carried forward and that's hidden in these ancient documents and goes back to Herbie's Trismegistus or whatever, instead you're going, oh, look, my, my historical excavation uh, uncovers a fabrication, a playful creative fabrication that nonetheless goes, goes on and has real effects over consciousness, culture, institutions, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, it's it's one of those wonderful ways that studying esotericism, even if you want to maintain your scholarly distance, at some point you can't, you're, you're kind of in the current. You're like, ah, wait, I didn't want to. I was just studying these old texts and now I'm, I'm sort of reproducing things and am I even in control of this? And that kind of game, which is very much part of Illuminatus as well. I think is really core to you know aspects of what we're what we're looking at when we look at the broader course of of esoteric history, at least in the in the modern world. I mean, I think the dynamics change once you get too much you know earlier than sixteen hundred. Mm. The same things happen, but they don't have the same logic because of how yeah. things change. I think you're right. I think maybe part of that change as well is is related to the change in technology with printing book arts. Suddenly you have illustrated multimedia books that are kind of traveling in, in new ways. You have um, mass production of texts. You can suddenly have pamphlets, basically, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you suddenly have zines. We, we call them zines. They call them broadsides and, and what have you. And that, yeah. really, that really changes things for how, you yeah. know, so for example, how religions can spread. Absolutely. There is a woman who's a scholar whose name I forget, but she wrote a book called Invented Religions. And then the, the sub- title is something like the church of the subgenius discordianism something like that anyway so looking at these kind of modern kind of quasi joke religions you know but the title strikes me as very naive because aren't all religions invented religions like what is that's, this that's exactly the book is by carol cusick and yeah. and uh jeff kripal who was my uh, thesis advisor at rice for my phd that became high weirdness he had exactly the same reaction. I was carrying the book around going, yeah, there's some good stuff in this book. And he's like, that title's ridiculous. Aren't they all real? <laughs> they all invented? And you're like, yes, they are. And that's just a whole interesting thing in, in itself is when the invention of the religion is explicit about its inventive quality and it points to it. And yet somehow that, in, at least in some circumstances, it doesn't undermine the phenomena or the experience or the density of the text or the attractiveness of the position or its marketing power when so many other invented religions have to hide that stuff. They feel, I mean, they, they have to create some center of authenticity. And I think what these joke religions showed is that at least for some people, you know, you can't generalize, but for some people, it doesn't matter. And then that doesn't matter is actually a very interesting question if we take it as seriously as it should be taken, because you can't just say, oh, well, they're just having a laugh, enjoying a fake religion, reaping some of the rewards of conviviality or cosmology or a deeper sense of meaning or something. But, you know, really, this, we can't really take it that seriously, but you actually can. 
And especially when you get into neo-paganism and magic and, and the kind of role that a subjective experience has in those modes and how powerful that can be and how it can bring communities together, then you have to start going, well, look, maybe this really doesn't matter. And just as with Discordianism, it's not even just the fiction fact thing, oh, they're making it up and is this real? And they, they have these funny names like Omar Ravenhurst and they refer to these law, oh, the law of fives. And then there's this whole cosmology that comes out and you're like, they're just kind of riffing with it. But it's also about that very humor. Are they sincere? Are they being ironic? And there really is a way if you play that game correctly or, or with a certain kind of flair, you're no longer locked into either position. And there's a kind of strange surreal post-irony space that is achieved where a different kind of realism kicks in. I don't know, that's, maybe that's not the right way to put it, but it becomes very serious again, even as it never loses the laughs. And so it's, it becomes almost a sort of trickster logic again. And, and in that sense has a kind of archaic power in a certain way, even if it's formulated in, in these cases in a very historically located, post-war, uh, a bohemian milieu. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see definite parallels, for example, within Sufism, where you get these crazy um, dervishes who, who rock into town and then just kind of like piss everyone off and then go, my, my work is done here, I'm off. And along the way, one of the things they may have well have done is sort of gone against every legal norm of Islam, right? And then if you were to ask the dervish, what are you doing? They're like, well, I'm trying to bring Islam to the people. You know, I'm all about Islam. And it's like, okay, hmm. <laughs> and then you, you sit back and think, hmm, all right, what's going on here? Now, maybe this is a, a boring question because I love what you're, you're telling me about this, um, this religious milieu of discordianism. So this is one of the things Robert Anton Wilson's into. He gets into that during the process of writing Illuminatus, which is sort of written from 69 onwards, gets published in 75 in three volumes. He will then publish a book called Cosmic Trigger, which I guess is, you could call it nonfiction. It's a bi it's a autobiographical sort of musings, which has a sort of very strong tragic element to it as well, because mm -hmm. his daughter dies. But in this period, if I got my dates right, he's into some Crowleyan magical work, right? So I wonder if you can tell us what you've found out about about that scene because it's quite intriguing, right? This isn't the, oh yeah, this isn't the OTO of Jack Parsons anymore. This is like post nineteen sixties Flower Child, everything. Exactly. Um, I, I'm not uh, an expert in in the OTO, and so I might mangle some of the details on the on the sort of what we could call the restoration of the OTO in the late sixties, in particular, then the early nineteen seventies when Grady McMurtry picks up the the thread uh, in, in California. And just as a kind of general comment, I've always, I've always seen as a kind of Californiaist at heart that when Crowley dies, where is Thelema? Thelema is in California. And when the OTO comes back in a way, it never goes away exactly, but when it re, you know, when, when and not just the OTO, but when Crowley hits the scene again in the very late 60s, yes, he's already on Sergeant Peppers, but it's actually hard to find his books in 1967. The Great Revival occurs in 69, 70, 71, 72. That's the really era when he's coming back, and it's also the era when we see the OTO reborn in a way, uh, or at least energetically, 
with Grady McMurtry and all that scene and with Robert Anton Wilson. So uh, Robert Anton Wilson, I think they're still writing Illuminatus. It's 1970. And none other than Alan Watts turns him on to Israel Regardi's biography, which, of course, is the eye of the triangle. So you have that extra Illuminatus, Illuminati symbol reference. And Wilson dives into it. And I think it's actually really significant. So on the one hand, Wilson is just one of many people who and scenes that are rediscovering or discovering the beast in the milieu of the early 1970s, let's say, or 1970, the long 60s. And there's a variety of different expressions this takes. You know, Kenneth Anger's already been doing it in his films and he makes them super rising. And there's, you know, and whatever, David Bowie sings about it. And Jimmy Payne, you know, there's a lot of Crowley's by, by the early 1970s. But what's significant about Wilson is because he was himself a critical thinker, a more or less a constructivist, you know, whether it's talking about language or social categories, perceptions, and someone who was interested in and came from natural sciences, though he didn't really do it himself, but he had a sort of sense of that kind of engineering approach that he plucked out a particularly important Crowley out, out of all of these Crowleys who were sort of returning and being reimagined at that time, which is the skeptical Crowley. Right. And while, you know, so today's you know scholars of Crowley will talk about this period and how do we think about the skeptical empiricist, almost positivist side of some of his writings. And how do we compare that with his, you know, obviously prophetic religious self imaginings or self projections or self creations or his more hardcore esoteric, how did you think about magic? And, you know, it's one of the threads we get to deal with this, with this complicated figure. But I think what's really key in terms of the history of, of contemporary esotericism is that Wilson is able to underscore and highlight the skeptical Crowley and then transmit that through his own work into a kind of punk, like you could think of it as sort of like a punk post hippie esoterical world in the late seventies and definitely in the 1980s and definitely in the 1990s that allows a, a kind of non OTO thalema that is more skeptical is more pragmatic. And it really kind of sets up in some ways that fundamental um, move you find in chaos magic in the seven, you know, really first articulated in the seventies of like, there is no tradition. We are making the shit up as we go along. And so I, it really allowed that kind of postmodern moment to gain its own ancestor. So we see Crowley then not as this great satanic figure or this remarkable reviser of ancient traditions of ceremonial magic and, or sexual magic even. Instead, we see him as a, a prankster, trickster inventor who comes up with a way of, of approaching the mysteries that is light on the ontology, but heavy on the experience. And that feeds into this kind of very hedonistic, but also very exploratory kind of world. So it really, it, I think Wilson's influence on later modes of esoteric thought and experience particularly outside of traditions, Wicca or whatever, is really quite significant. And it has a lot to do with the way he was able to channel a particular current that's already within Crowley and make it available and fun and also scary 
you know, I mean, it was, he's always very willing to admit that, I mean, in a, in a way, what we see with his cosmic trigger, uh, you know, a great example of this transformation of, you know, fiction into fact or personal experience and which is, which category do you put it in is that a lot of the crazy conspiracies and esoteric lore that he's playing with an Illuminatus, including Crowley stuff, including things about weird fiction and all these games in a way they kind of take over his actual life because uh, we can call him a fool. He was experimenting with taking, you know, large amounts of LSD doing, you know, Crowley and rituals, doing uh, sex magic, doing self-programming, like really, really going for it. Like really, really seeing how far, even with this kind of skeptical attitude of I'm just, I'm just setting up a, a, cir a circumstance and we're just going to see what happens. That kind of DIY approach, how far it can actually take you. And it took him pretty far until his kind of reality broke. And then he lived inside of a kind of paranoid, paranormal uh, mind frame that seemed pretty sticky for quite a long time where he thought he was receiving these messages from the star system Sirius. And there were all these synchronicities and book synchronicities and it was all woven together and all of that was also happening at the same time as he was uh, participating in the bay area esoteric and occult scene we don't get a lot of information about that at least that i've discovered you know he's parts of certain covens um he's he knows grady mcmurtry he knows other people working with philema he's also very much plugged into a variety of groups that come out of the a new reformed orthodox order of the golden dawn um, which was a pagan group that was particularly important for the, some of the questions that we've been talking about here today, because they were in the face of Wicca, which claims this great tradition that goes back through family trads, etc. These folks were basically students at a uh, experimental filmmakers class in San Francisco, and the, the, the assignment was to make a ritual. So they said, okay, let's make a ritual. Let's make a pagan ritual. Let's worship the goddess. And they did it out of pure humor and playfulness. And as they described the experience, it worked. And they were like, oh, wait, what was that? And so they started to explore this kind of performance-driven DIY way of approaching pagan mysteries. And a lot of those people ended up being very influential in the long-term growth of paganism in the Bay Area. And, and as well as some of these groups that, um, that Wilson was participating in. So he was also a participant in some social collective operations of, of esotericism. But I get, you, you get the impression that most of his work is uh, solo or with his wife. Um, we don't get a lot of juicy details on his practices. It's actually kind of interesting. He's very garrulous in a lot of ways, but he's, he's also kind of private and careful in, in certain interesting ways uh, as um, do well. Do you think he's being esoteric? About yeah, that? there's a really fascinating part in Cosmic Trigger where he's talking about some of these practices and he, can't, or whatever, he explicitly does not give the details. And when he does that, he sort of explains, look, I'm not going to give you these details because this stuff can be really crazy. You have to have your shit together, basically, to be able to try these things out. You can wind up in the mental. So he's he does this interesting gesture that, that in a way is contrary to his general spirit, which is very DIY. It's very here's the nuts and bolts. Go ahead. Do it yourself. There's no masters here. There's no authorities here. And yet he plays this kind of game. And 
I do think he does it for esoteric reasons, both because he kind of actually believes it, that the stuff is a little dangerous and he does feel responsibility, but it's also a way of kind of creating his own kind of persona. And that's a very powerful persona. And he, and he squeezes that, per, he, you know, he keeps the, that persona going until, until he dies. He wasn't making a lot of money, but he was able to maintain himself as this kind of avuncular, mischievous, but also a little bit of a guru. Mm. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it, there's that question about esotericism of just, if you just look at it, if you look at that kind of gesture, there are secrets that I cannot tell you. And I cannot tell you them because they are dangerous and you must, you know, do work to, to be able to understand or discover them. So we can look at that and say, okay, that's referring to some actual practice or this or that, which may or may not be extraordinarily convulsive. But it's also just this gesture of the secret Absolutely. where you conceal and, and, and reveal at the same time. This is, this is and, what I talk about as public, as the, the rhetorical act of public esotericism. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating, uh, to me, it's one of the most interesting and important aspects of it because it, it, it applies in many different fields. There's secrets in different zones. But in esotericism, you see its full cultural, sociological, uh, imaginal register like taken to the nines. I mean, you have to, that's what it's about. It's yeah. like, how far can I push this secret? And even though we know sort of that most of the secrets, I'm not going to say all, most of them kind of take the form of like, you finally get into the highest level. You know, you finally are, are revealed, you go through the last right, the ninth degree or 12th degree, whatever it is, 32nd degree, whatever it is. And you, and you're there, you finally there with all the guys and they're like, yeah. Okay. So who's going to do the bake sale next week? Because we got to get the money going in and, you know, it's like completely deflated. It, and, and that deflation is part of the, the, the secret. It's not like it's, Oh, it's actually bullshit. Oh, it's just a fake construct. No, 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 no. It's like the mundane and the secret. I have this weird kind of relationship that I think is, is really significant. So I think it's important that even if he was trying to not do that, even Wilson couldn't resist playing with that sense of a secret and also not going into detail about the things he did. Like so many, so many texts today where people just like give you every little detail about what the thing is. It's like, like meditation texts today are terrible because they're just all explicit, 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 explicit. And so if you're not going to go implicit, if you're not going to hide and play that revealing, concealing game, I, you know, at a certain point, I'm not really sure what we're talking about anymore. It's part of the fun. It's part of the magic. Uh, so you get to see that with him, even when in other ways he's trying to be explicit and, mm. you know, and transparent. I love it. Let's talk a little bit about the Chapel Perilous, this place he ends up in. So this is the the mental state. I guess he would descri describe it as a mental state where you enter this realm where there's like everything is sending you messages and there's synchronicities happening all around you and you emerge either agnostic or stone cold paranoid. I guess nowadays people need to cast their minds back to the 70s when paranoia was really a threat in a way. I think we're so used to paranoia now. It's almost become denatured and we're, we're just it's just part of the texture of modern life because of universal surveillance and you know it's almost like paranoia is fun. Join Facebook. But back in the day, with, with the rise of new new information technologies, new forms of surveillance, 
the kind of authoritarian crackdowns that had happened in the 60s, followed by mass rebellions in various different societies. You know, paranoia was a really heavy, leaden weight on American culture, I feel like. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. It's actually I've done done some work since publishing the book on on looking at this stuff. And one of the things I discovered in, in just reading a lot of move, movement texts from the 60s and 70s is how frequently people refer to paranoia and they refer to it partly in the ways that you're talking about, where it's really a threat, like you really got to be on your toes about the possibility of this swallowing you up and for good for good reason sometimes. But there's also, a, a, again, a kind of um, quotidian side to it. There's sort of just an acknowledgement that to be a self, to just be an ordinary ego trying to like play your games and whatever, is to be paranoid. Hmm. So there's there, paranoia is both a, a, a terrible threat because people are sensing that that modern society is becoming more more involved with secret controllers and requires more of that kind of skepticism and that more, more of that uh, critical awareness, but that there's also just something about being human that has a quality of paranoia to it. So in a way they're, it, they're much more comfortable with it. I mean, you were talking about today and I think on the one hand it's today, it's clear that paranoia and let's like link it to conspiracy theory, though they're different things, but is a form of entertainment. Mm. And yet we don't often refer to our own ordinary paranoia. Paranoia is still something that happens to other people, to people who have lost the plot. We are okay. We kind of understand, even if we have alternative worldviews, there's less of a kind of acknowledgement of just that we're all a little bit paranoid. We almost have to be both as human subjects, constructing a world that has, has some kind of consistency and that is not you know completely safe and so other beings or forces are trying to undermine it but also just in terms of the political realities the immediate realities that we're in i think that what the way that chapel perilous is is a still a very important metaphor particularly for what happens to you when you when you really take on the diversity and multiplicity of worldviews that is now the nature of reality where it's like we are, we live in these silos or, you know, reality tunnels are, are intensifying and multiplying in ferocity everywhere you turn. And so you can expose 10 people to QAnon material and they're more or less similar kind of people, education level, drug use, political conviction. And one or two of them will go down the rabbit hole and won't come back for a while, if ever. And why does that happen to some people, not other people? That's a very interesting question. But it's definitely the case that while for, I think, a lot of us now, we just accept that we're swimming in a, in a kind of paranoid reality. And we're aware, you know, just the, just the surveillance alone. We're all under it. What are you going to do? You just keep living, have a little maybe black humor about it. Sometimes you get really freaked out. But at the same time, we're also culturally, just in terms of, whatever consensus reality is, if it is anything anymore, is more revealed as a, a game with multiple players pulling people into multiple dimensions. And so the, the sort of lesson of, of Chapel Perilous is really significant now, which is that if you're going to navigate this world and navigate, navigate it intelligently, i.e. do research, so to speak, you're still running the risk of being caught up in a reality tunnel. And it, it's just like, it's just almost like a physical possibility. 
certain percentage of people go down these rabbit holes, some of them will be caught in such an overwhelming and totalizing belief system that it ends up recoding everything in their life and they can't talk to their parents anymore and they lose their job because they're so all they can do is talk about being a you know a, a, a targeted person or whatever the form of their paranoia is we can just see it almost as like a system effect that is possible and then what do the rest of us do well the rest of us have to hone our agnosticism and it doesn't mean like i don't know how could you ever know Let's just go to the bar. It's not that kind of agnosticism. It's the capacity to continue to think critically, to explore, to model reality, to communicate your models of reality while refusing to congeal around a particular point because there's lots of system players that want you to congeal Mm -hmm. on whatever the point is. Left, right, center, Brexit, not blah, blah, blah. They, everybody wants you to congeal because then you're easily tracked. And we know, okay, we got you. We got you in that kind of zone and we can feed back the positive information that keeps you there. Mm. So a certain kind of agnostic, critical thinking, uh, uh, tricks, even a kind of tricksterish. I think it's just kind of a necessity if you're really going to try to think on this level of all these multiple claims about what's happening in reality, even just politically. But once you bring in the metaphysics and, you know, what kind of forces, non-human forces are operating here and what, what is a demon? Is it, is a demon in a system? Is it in a technology? Is it, is it just a fiction? Is it a force? You know, these kinds of questions, which are obviously very pertinent, not just to a little esoteric fringe. Now they're part of popular culture to really wrestle with these. I think we need to have, honed our chapel perilous skill set you know i mean sometimes i think there's another way out you know maybe it's not just those two you know it's like maybe there's other ways but but i want to bring eddie in on this one because eddie's just sitting there nodding his head and he's a you know he's he's been in his chapels and uh i i'm curious how you would characterize the chapel perilous experience and how important that is to wilson's work Wow. Well, you know, I think it's fundamental to his work um, in so many ways. And I don't have the, 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 the language you have to describe it, I think. But um, I just see it as, as something that, that transcends all kinds of uh, experiences, but yet is intrinsic to all those experiences. So it's not just about an LSD experience where you're, you know, hitting the end of it or the peak. Um, you know, it's it's in the little things like, you know, going through this quitting smoking, like there's a chapel perilous there, you know, like in all these moments. And you have to you have to wrap your head around figuring out your own head. And that's not easy. And there's no there's no rules and there's no handbook for it. So you know, anybody who says they've got their head figured out, you know, I think is a liar because we don't know what's coming next and we don't know how to how to deal with some of those things. So I think it's a great metaphor for all kinds of things that we experience. Um, but I'm going to leave it at that because because you were ranting, you were going on a great, a great rant about that. And well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep a rant. You know, one of the things studying the counterculture, studying the, the long 60s a lot, I think one of the things that we miss the most is how deeply what happened in the 60s, um, both politically, but also, you know, existentially or, or, or 
in terms of culture and consciousness really had to do, I already dropped the word, had to do with the power of existentialism. If we don't recognize how much the Beats and the Bohemians in the late 50s and early 60s were, were just overwhelmingly influenced by a certain kind of popular existentialism, not necessarily the, the strict philosophical arguments, but a general sense of groundlessness, of having to make it up as you go along. There's no, you know, existence before essence uh, with the kind of hipster quality, but also a kind of nihilism that the, the threat of suicide is kind of in the picture and you, there's no way around it through any obvious mechanism. And that a lot of the things that I think are most interesting and lasting in the long sixties are actually both extending and responding to that sense of groundlessness. And the parts that interest me the most are often ones that acknowledge this groundlessness, whether it's, no, you can't take me seriously and you can't take me as a humorist, or whether it's, no, we just made it up, but somehow it works, or it's Chapel Perilous, where like, even though I am receiving information from the world that is conforming consistently over time to a narrative that I am now actually kind of stuck in where my experiences are continuing to support it, I nonetheless maintain fidelity to a kind of groundlessness that keeps me in not knowing, even in the midst of all of these obvious claims. That's a weird move to make. Is it esoteric? In a way, I think it is. Is it also something else? Yeah, I think that's it too. Like it's not just about esotericism or about philosophy or even about existentialism as a kind of lifestyle or something. It's a kind of cognitive mode that's both protective and fluid. Like it allows more movement because you're not quite as captured by these perspectives. It, it, it could be, it can seem very amoral. It can seem nihilistic. Maybe it is a little bit. And that's where it, it becomes really important to recognize that a lot of this Illuminati prankster, mischievous, making things up, screwing with uh, pranking on the difference between fact and fiction, that a lot of those uh, techniques and attitudes have in the last five, six, seven years, really the last five, been uh, visible most strongly in the alt-right, mm. in the mechanisms and games that the alt-right play, particularly online, particularly with me, just the whole story of Pepe the Frog is a story of peculiar synchronicities with an esoteric overtone to them that involve practice, but they also involve pranking. They involve anonymity and names and jokes and lots of satire, lots of, you don't know, you can't get me because I'm hiding behind authenticity when it's convenient. And then I'll switch into, no, it's just a joke. It's just a you joke. Getting mad? It's, you get what? Oh, that was just a joke, you know? And so all, a lot of that, those mechanisms are, are very similar in technical spirit uh, across these two currents, even though the content and the attitude are pretty different. So what um, do you think Robert Anton Wilson would have thought about Operation Mindfuck being hijacked by sort of quasi-neo-Nazis? I think what he would do would be to make fun of it. Mm. And it's harder to make... It's not as easy... you got to be good to make fun of this stuff because... It, it has a lot of traps set up for you. It's set up for your earnestness. Yeah. And so since a lot of, you know, particularly now, the a lot of the last or progressive values, uh, social justice values are extraordinarily 
earnest and serious um, that it's it, it, it's easy to get captured. But I think we we've actually kind of blown it a little bit in the last four or five years that the the humorous side, the mocking side, um, has really kind of gone fallow because people were just like, "What do we do with all this alt right nastiness? It's so toxic, and yet it's captured this sort of nerdiness and this kind of irony." What? How do we even think our way around it? And I think the I think Wilson would have been good at figuring out some of its weak points and and returning its you know mockery with mockery and. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's that's a really good question. What do you think, Eddie? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, part of me wants to go like you said, he would just punch holes in it. But another part of me would be he I think he'd almost participate. You know, maybe maybe to fuck it up more, maybe to throw another wrench in the in the works, but there's enough in there that's interesting and that has, you know, just just the the littlest bit of validity or at least enough to sort of jump in and look into it. And when you when you jump down these rabbit holes, you know, I think he would be very much jumping down those rabbit holes. He might not stay there. Uh, I think he'd find his way out again and have a good time ripping about it. I think Eddie's point is a good one, actually, because I realize, uh, you know, just to be frank, because there's been so little written and memorialized about Wilson, that my portrayal, you know, while it has some criticisms in it, is largely an attempt to say, look, we got to take this guy seriously. He was very interesting. And in many ways, he was really uh, uh, creative and innovative and liberating in a lot of ways. But he definitely had, you know, he was a tricky character. There's some real criticisms you can make of him on a lot of levels. If you are more of a, on the skeptic side and appreciate the way that he was able to, to play with a lot of mysteries without losing the plot or going woo-woo in any way. You can find elements of the vision that are woo-woo or that are, are sort of silly or that are, uh, you know, some of his defenses of the paranormal studies can be unconvincing. Um, he became kind of rabidly anti-feminist in certain ways at certain times. That was just sort of lame, uh, like just not very artfully done. And I think that there's that Eddie has a point that uh, that, yeah, he might have just played alongside without signing up. I mean, he's an interesting figure because he makes you realize or confront some something that I've always found very enigmatic about what what are our ultimate moral sources, because we we argue about philosophy and ethics and politics as if it's the positions that we come to that actually engender our moral sources and where, where we kind of draw the line personally. And I'm just not sure that's true. You know, you, the classic example is the religion versus science where the, you know, if you're a religious person, you can't imagine how anybody could hold at bay the, the dark forces in, in human, in the human mind without an idea of God or even an idea of retribution or karma or, or sin or something like that. And so you look at a scientist and you go, they're just little, they're just like demons in waiting. They just, they haven't, they haven't realized it yet. You know, there, there's a hole there and there's no way to support it. But if you actually go and are among secular people, it's, it's really, that's not a, not a problem. And, you know, studies show that like they're, they're, they make, they can make the kind of moral choices that you, you, you suffer for because of your ethical stance. 
and they'll this is you know left and right and blah 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 you know so you actually don't maybe you don't need religion at all to have strong moral sources and wilson is interesting because he has kind of a political version of it. he is he is a a right-wing anarchist you can call it a libertarian uh but it, it it is much more interested in the freedom of the individual or the singularity than it is in large-scale social movements so he wasn't a man of the left although he shared a lot of left critiques of dominant society as did a lot of libertarians in this in this era it's kind of a mode of, of libertarianism that has largely been eclipsed by the sort of market libertarianism and sort of Silicon Valley transhumanism of today. Or, um, or Ayn Rand, like... Exactly. And he hated Ayn Rand. So he makes yeah. fun of Ayn Rand all the time. He doesn't think subjectivism is BS. He doesn't like the science. He's, he's like, he's, he's more of an anarchist. He's an ontological anarchist, not mm -hmm. just a, a political anarchist. So that is, you know, it's a, it's a dice roll ontological anarchism. Who knows what's going to come up? You know, in a way, it's like groovy, like Taoism, but it's also a little bit, you know, nihilistic. Like, what have I called up? Do not call up any you cannot put down. And, you know, so, so that's kind of the game. But what's interesting about his politics is that while he had all these libertarian principles that a lot of people on the left now just completely excoriate, like you can't even, don't even start with me on, on some of these ideas, in, in other ways, he was just like, yeah, he liked poor people and thought that, that rich people were, were mostly lame because they didn't like poor people. And he yeah. was a poor person. And he came from that and he lived as a poor person. And he never, ever, ever had slightest slice of his time for Hayek style market libertarians because he thought that they were ultimately motivated was just a dislike of poor people. And so that doesn't really fit in the kind of logic. And so he's a very interesting person in terms of his kind of ethics too, where you get a sense of a, someone who's thinking thoughts that could be dangerous and yet in his own manifestation, maybe with possible exceptions around his ideas about, uh, around feminism, you know, he, 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 you know, he was a good guy. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a tricky one to think how he would respond to the, the sort of contemporary operation mindfuck of right wingery. And uh, with that, and with just a, a quick Wilsonian reminder that everyone who's hearing this is, of course, listening to it, streaming on the internet, I will say, Eric Davis, thank you very much, and stay esoteric. All right. Thanks a lot, man. This is fun, Earl. <laughs>